Hello! It is an Thursday in April. Thank you for joining me here. I'm going to read my most latest essay. Therapists are also the police, sex work, social work, and the politics of deservingness. Alternatively titled, Reasons I Have No Desire to Get Licensure as a Clinical Therapist. I invite you to make yourself cozy, to grab some tea, enjoy the sounds of my cat in the background as she will undoubtedly try to make noise. She gets very jealous when I'm talking to anybody but her. I guess that you listen to this with an open mind because I know I might be saying something new, but I think by the end of the essay you will completely understand what I mean. So without further ado. To begin, I think licensure does more to protect the clinician than it does the client. If you're here, you've probably already seen this viral video where I come out as a stripper and state plainly that I do not want licensure. Or maybe you've been here and you've been hip to things for a while because truly none of that was a secret. Either way, welcome. Threadings is a newsletter and podcast where I explore black feminism, love studies, and other things that hold me together. And this essay happens to touch and rest easy in all three of the aforementioned categories. Because I do need to state this clearly, I don't think licensure makes you a bad or unfit clinician. I do think licensure is a contract with the state that many of us are coerced into signing. It's not an accident that we're trained to attach legitimacy, expertise, and other metrics of worthiness to whether the state can account for us or not. It's also not an accident that we tout the ability to report a licensed professional as a positive when most of our clients don't know how to do that anyways. I want us, social workers and those impacted by social work, to think critically about where and by what mechanism we, the social workers, swear our allegiances. I want to provide an alternate story, alter, I want to provide an alternate story for social work students who are told for the entirety of their education and careers that licensure is the most correct path forward. I do so with the understanding that the vast majority of social work positions available are locked behind state licensure requirements. I ask us to resist that infrastructure anyhow it is not an accident. This essay will analyze a mix of academic and long-form texts as well as personal experiences, and it has the following thesis. All forms of policing carry unnecessary violence and social workers are under the umbrella of police. I understand policing as the coercive hands that use the threat of physical or metaphysical consequence and overhanging fear to compel the actions of the masses away from communal sovereignty and towards supporting racial capitalism against our own interests. In shorter terms, policing happens through policy, not just a white man with a badge and a gun. Because social work was founded with the desire to limit resources to those considered quote unquote deserving. I commit my work to those of us firmly in the undeserving category, especially as a black, queer, abolitionist sex worker. I am personally wary of the surveillance that comes with soft policing and work to caution us, the public, into presuming benevolence of those of us social workers working for or in contract with the state. Let's begin. This essay comes to you in four parts. Here we are with part one, the origins of policing and social work. I have here a comic that is titled Against Soft Policing, which I will read to you here. Are the cops the only people who do the work of policing? The word police was first used in the 15th century among European elites to discuss how they could promote commerce and compel people to work the wage. It meant what we now call policy, what we now talk about in terms of education, healthcare, urban planning, etc. used to be discussed in terms of police. Have you ever been policed by an official who wasn't a cop? There's a drawing here now of a white woman talking to a black man 
and she says you have to take a drug test in order to remain in transitional housing dot 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 a similar thing happened to me the reader and the author of this essay when i was confronted with a surprise drug test in order to complete my clinical hours could we reimagine doctors social workers teachers and any other helping professions quote unquote in a way that breaks its connection to policing in the panel no soft police linked at the bottom of this essay Mariam Kaba takes her time to speak on the history of capitalistic governance that highlights the connection between policy and police. Policy and police formation. Police and policy formation. You see how all those things are synonymous? She says it better than I will, so I've transcribed her words below with all bolding and emphasis my own. Law enforcement are not the only kind of police, actually, right? So this goes back to the point we were making in the graphic that I just read to you about when police comes into being the notion and the word police coming into being that policing has a deeper history than most people acknowledge because the term was first used in the 15th century as a part of elite discussion concerning how the rising states of europe could promote commerce and encourage people to work for the wage instead of living a life of subsistence this is when the term police comes into being because people talk a lot about police and capitalism and those things coming together but you have to understand the discussion of what they were terming at the time police science was one of the primary ways the work of administrating a government was talked about until the early 19th century and during this time police meant what you and i now understand as policy we call policy police that's what the connection is here so police encompass various things, administrative science, public health, urban planning, and much of social policy still carries the basis of that old police science. You see the connection there? Soft policing wasn't something we just invented in 1996, right? It's actually co-constitutive of the rise of the notion of police in Europe at the very least. So the abiding concern was really the protection of private property. It was the creation of markets. It was the regulation of poverty. It was the separation of the worthy and deserving poor from the undeserving criminal, quote unquote, element. This is why so many people's experiences with us, for example, like sometimes public education, sometimes social welfare agencies can feel so oppressive because social policy is not designed to help all people equally. It's actually a police project to meant to fabricate order and pacify the population, end quote. I love her. I love her. I took so many notes from her when I was in graduate school. Okay, so there are a couple things here that are important. The first thing that you need to know is that the system of policing stretches far past active policemen. Police ex policing existed before the construction of the United States, and we here tend to think of police slowly in slave-catching terms, right? That the police were repurposed to put black people in prison, and that is absolutely true. But policing existed before the construction of the United States. So the function exceeded slave-catching or the creation of prisoners meant for free labor, although that is a piece of contemporary policing in the United States. The worldwide system of policing, designed to change the world order from one where people work together for local communal goods and services, to one where people traded labor for wages, a system with a profit margin that enriched the elite way faster than feudalism ever could. In order to make market such a fundamental paradigm shift, every single facet of society was regulated with a mask of benevolence. You're gonna hear me talk about that mask of benevolence over and over and over again over the course of this essay, okay? 
The centralized state told us all that regulation in all forms was a good thing, that they alone could ensure the ins uh, that they alone could ensure our standards of health, wealth, sanitation, resources, education, etc., were up to snuff. That without regulatory forces, eyeing armed policemen heavy on the force, we would just fall into senseless murder and fires and starvation and anarchy. Ah. So we're gonna note here. The capital F fear that comes into play when thinking of policy and policing. The idea that we cannot possibly and should not attempt to regulate our own selves shows up in mental health spaces all the time. This is not to say that people skilled in healing are unnecessary. I actually think community healers engage in deeply crucial work. I am saying that in my field, the private practice arena, the gold standard for healer is a professional person trained in formal academic colleges and registered with the state. The ideal we are taught is not an unlicensed community worker and certainly not a life coach. This is where we get that outsourcing of skilled work. Healing comes from people who have been trained with state standardized measures and that's it. Under the state's regulatory systems, both the healer and the person seeking healing are subjected to surveillance, scrutiny, and punishment if they don't comply with the wants of the state. In the case of the healer, licensure makes you a mandated reporter, meaning that if the particulars of the intent to harm oneself or someone else or anything involving the harm of children comes to surface, a mandated reporter is required to contact whatever authority is most appropriate that almost always involves the traditional or the administrative police, usually a combination of the two. What constitutes as harm is also then up to the reporting professional, which can be terrifying and murky for the care seeker. If you, the licensed professional, fail to report, you stand to risk your licensure, read, the ability to work in your field, as well as your current employment, fines, even imprisonment. And then in the case of the person seeking treatment, you, the patient, are required to trade personal information, documentation of your system, symptoms, and diagnoses going on file for the listening ear of someone who may or may not be able to help you long term. Documentation is necessary unless you can pay out of pocket to avoid the involvement of insurance, of course. Privacy, as most things, is a class privilege. In both cases, the argument is the same, that nothing less than state regulation is safe that outsourcing expertise is always a better option than whatever care our communities can provide, that the power imbalances of that person being able to report you, document you, or institutionalize you are nothing to fear so long as you have nothing to hide. Therapists absolutely are part of the regulatory network of police science. I cannot recommend reading the book No More Police enough. If you're nervous to read a whole book, just consider the chapter cited in this essay called No Soft Police, or buy it for yourself and a friend from an independent bookstore. It is fuck Amazon over here every day, all day. Thank you. Section two, the benevolent, the deserving, and the whore. Social work's origins and its attitudes towards sex workers. Pictured is a <laughs> pictured is a snapshot of my first stripper heel sitting on my lap in a car. It is a gold six inch Ellie. This was a foolish shoe to buy as a first shoe, but it was so cute. And it is captioned the day I became an undesirable. Social work in the United States is a doozy. So a quick and dirty on the establishment of the field. Contemporary social work in the United States 
began with Christian evangelical churches providing aid to impoverished communities in major metropolitan areas. Cities across the United States, particularly New York and Chicago, wanted to attract capitalistic business tycoons in their heavy swinging pockets, so they had little tax policies and even less tax enforcement. This completely guts social welfare services. Big money tycoons also do not give two flying fucks about the welfare of the people they extract labor from, so child labor was common, easy, and cheap. Upper class Christian white women that felt compelled by their religion rise up and fix the problems of 20th century American society, I guess. <laughs> they took a sweeping gaze around the desolation of the country's impoverished and donned their Wonder Woman belt of righteousness or whatever, you know, forgive me for not having stars in my eyes about these retellings. These people were as racist, as homophobic, and as horrorphobic as the day is long. I am sparing you the boring details, but if you would like them, you can go ahead and scroll down to the resource list at the bottom of the essay. So here's our first really important note. Resources and aid distribution operate under that same police science of deservingness, okay? Deservingness is a really crucial piece of capitalism. It's the base of meritocracy. In social work, the qualifications of deserving pass through the lens of white Christian wives, not just women, wives. Wife here denotes a woman that is white that is a direct beneficiary of the patriarchy, even if they are against male tyranny on paper, they do lie down with that male tyranny every night. These white women, Christian wives, focus heavily on class-based oppression, so aid to the poor, and gender-based oppression, aid to women, often women in the societal role of nice, or sorry, the societal role of wife, almost always women in the societal role of white. Jane Addams wins a Nobel Prize, for her work advocating for child labor protections, even though she was mad horophobic, she was also a little bit racist, but you know, bygones, I guess. Children are regularly seen as the most deserving people group around because they haven't even had time to do anything wrong. Social workers here remarkably did not focus on race-based oppression or what happens when race-based oppression intersects with other kinds of oppression like gender or sexuality or occupation, etc. The politics of deservingness follow us everywhere. It's the foundation of capitalism, the bedrock of meritocracy, and the justification behind the unequal distribution of resources, aid, and assistance. It's also one of the things that still, to this day, makes sure that the people that benefit most from public assistance programs are white women. It's why the face of a white girl child is always front and center for advertisements around sex trafficking, despite the majority of sex trafficking victims in the US and worldwide being impoverished black, brown, and indigenous girls and women. And indigenous girls, trans girls, genderqueer people that are black, brown, and indigenous, not white. You know, the people that are not ever deserving of a society turning everything upside down to find them. The people that no one really minds when they go missing. One of the foundational tenets of social work policy in the United States was the eradication of sex work, which was seen as a blight upon citadels and a smear upon the moral conscience of this great nation. Constant fear-mongering, centralizing on the existence of sex work took place. White women social workers touted the idea that because the demand for sex work existed, this meant that young women would be kidnapped into sex slavery. They were in fact terrified that sex work would become a way to enslave white women. And in the reality that the academic articles are loath to cite, 
their husbands were the patrons of the people that they were trying to eradicate. Source, if I had a dollar for every mad white woman wife in the club every shift, I would have been able to pay my tip out every night from that, from that money alone. Thus, the making of the whore, a woman wearing a scarlet red A on her bosom, less of a person, more of a metaphysical concept, right? A problem to be solved, a floating disembodied pussy to be fucked, a nothing to murder, a mission to save and to serve. Melissa Deer Grant says it best in playing the whore, the, the work of sex work. She says, to produce a prostitute where before there had only been a woman is the purpose of such policing. Remember, policing and policy are synonymous. It is a socially acceptable way to discipline women, fueled by a lust for law and order that is the core of what I call the prostitute imaginary, the ways in which we conceptualize and make arguments about prostitution. The prostitute imaginary compels those who seek to control, abolish, or otherwise profit from prostitution, as it is also, oh, and it is also the rhetorical product of their effort. It is driven by both fantasies and fears about sex and value, and the value of human life. This is a grant in the chapter of The Police. It's on page four of her book. Again, this is a book that I would heavily recommend reading. It's a nice, cute, teeny read. You can get through it in maybe an afternoon or two and you will learn a whole lot about things that you previously did not know about sex trade, the sex work, and policing sex work. In the role of prostitute, the worker that clocks in and clocks out of their job becomes unable to remove the costume of whore. And whore is a standing in society that is decidedly, perpetually undeserving. She is conveniently always mute. She does not speak and she can only scream for help, right? This is the prostitute imaginary that Gira Grant is talking about. The only whore deserving of aid is the one that desperately wishes to leave the sex trade, one that performs the proper amount of shame and penance for her soliciting and desires to reassimilate into respectable community life. Social workers still, to this day, lock aid to sex workers behind isolating them from their sex working communities and forcing them to leave the sex trade. And we call this rehabilitation. Why is this underbelly of targeting sex workers important to the system of social work? Because you can always tell the ethics of an organization based on the way that they treat the people in the shadows. Where sex workers call for decriminalization and means of self-regulation, policymakers, policemen of all sorts, usurp their ability to work safely. Here I've linked resources on understanding how SESTA-FOSTA severely impacted sex workers and did nothing to mitigate the illegal sex trade. Not even illegal, the, the one that targets children. No matter how chronic the mask of benevolence is, your politic is most exposed with your actions towards those that no one will go out of their way to pretend to defend. In my personal experiences, some of the people that have been the quickest to disregard the needs of sex workers have been licensed clinical social workers. The combination of blackness, sex work, poverty, abolition practice has fully informed my decision to forego state licensure and upgrade my societal status to skilled licensed tradesmen. We're on part three here. Therapist role in policing. Yes, even therapists. I've also included a picture of point eight on aid to abolition from their website, invest in care, not cops. And I also want to note that there is a really crucial 
and very important distinction between counselors not cops and care not cops because one exchanges one kind of policing for another and the other gives communities a whole lot more autonomy about what they mean by care. When I say I'm, I am an abolitionist, that absolutely and without a doubt includes social work. And yes, it includes therapy as we know and understand it today. There is a perceived benevolence when it comes to therapists. That masks of benevolence I referenced earlier that crucially benefits the police state. We as therapists are taught to internalize this benevolence without firm question. We are a net good for society and for our clients. Seeing us will make better people uh, or us better or them better or facilitate their healing. Even if therapy cannot be a catch-all solution for everybody, there is some nobility to be found in trying. I think assuming our own benevolence as practitioners is a danger to ourselves and our communities. Many of us are skilled, compassionate, justice-oriented clinicians who strive to do their best by their clients. And for every single one of those people that I met in graduate school, there were three more that I winced and do mean physically, facially cringed at the thought of them with any sort of state-sanctioned authority. Thinking that we are one of the good ones is not an honest enough assessment of the field. The systems of policing go farther than your personal intent. The reality is we monitor you. Those of us contracted with the state become mandated reporters, meaning that there are certain things that you cannot tell us without us having to contact the authorities or be at risk of consequences. We do ourselves and our communities a disservice by ignoring the power imbalances that come with state backing. More than that, we often allow our own elitism to convince us that the system of therapy we have currently in place is a good thing, that we are a good thing. The fact that we live in societies where community has been so fractured that individual people have to trade money or privacy or both to call a stranger and find a way to cope with their societal stressors is ass. Why are we pretending like that is not awful? I'm going to take a moment to peel back the veil, that mask of benevolence on private practice therapy. When I trained as a student clinician in graduate school, I understood the function of private practice therapy as notating the ways one's habits disrupt one's productivity. This was oddly framed as the process of healing and not surviving under capitalism. I am always, always skeptical of interpretations of the human experience that conveniently justify the current world order and the positive spin given to endless forward momentum that we promote as growth most definitely falls under that category. I also experienced the expectation to self-regulate and move on personally when I endured graduate school during a time of intense grief. I lost so many family members to COVID, stress, poverty, or unfortunate combinations of the above that I don't even wish to mention the number. I've stopped bothering to count. I always forget someone and have to start over. I was housing insecure or homeless on more than one occasion. My school knew about these hardships, as did my clinical supervisors. I was never offered any official bereavement time or any assistance outside of a short-term loan from my university, on top of the student loans that I already took out for the damn degree itself. I was told to just work through the grief by my supervisor in my first year. I was not allowed to just quit my second year after breaking down from a significant familial death, even though I had accumulated all the necessary hours I needed for graduation. Also, that was a place that chose to charge my clients for meeting with me but refused to pay me, but I digress. How to be productive under duress is a central tenet of therapy today because we need to equip our constituents with the ability to endure the weight of this world. 
We are not trained to teach our constituents that a better world is possible. I'm gonna run that back because I think that's really important and then I'm gonna get up on a really quick soapbox. How to be productive under duress is a central tenet of therapy today because we need to equip our constituents with the ability to endure the weight of this world. We are not trained to teach our constituents that a better world is possible. Here's the soapbox. I think therapy would look a lot different if the goal was to eradicate the systems in place and not just to justify their existence or survive under them. True justice, true resource allotment, true healing comes from moving away from policing, away from carcerality and scarcity and towards reparations, communal living and community accountability. True justice and healing would have us working a fuck ton less and equipping our own places of belonging with the skills we learn in academy. It would have us turning to our communities with our expertise and not to the general public for money. One's freedom, well, I mean, not to say that I don't think that money should be involved in the work of healing. I do think healers should be paid just like everybody else doing work. But the idea that our our knowledge is best used towards strangers, especially because most people that can afford therapy on a regular basis are white, <laughs> rather than turning to our own communities who desperately need the resources that we can that we can acquiesce um, and not doing that because there's no money in that. I think that one's freedom to heal should not be connected to their ability to work under capitalism. But also, most therapists have signed contracts with the state and are excited about the opportunity to do so, so the outcomes of private practice therapy and social work as a whole don't surprise me. I just wish to remind us all that a better world than this is possible. All right, back to the essay. Productive versus unproductive was also framed as this means of moving away from the sticky mess of morality in therapeutic settings, those pesky Christian puritanical holdovers from the establishment of the field. Instead of behaviors being good or bad, I want us to think in terms of whether it was, pro or I was trained to think in terms of whether it was productive or unproductive to the life of my client. I was taught to focus and teach on tools that were designed to give us mastery of our own lives in acute settings, you know, control the things that you can for better outcomes. So two things on this. One, those tools come at the price of documentation and I will not shut up about this. You know how social media isn't actually free, you're like paying for it with your metadata? That's exactly how I feel about using insurance to pay for session. If someone was distressed to the point of tears, there's a box I check to notate that. If someone's countenance changes from normal to lethargic or angry, there are boxes to check for that. There is a line you have to walk of writing down just enough to let my supervisor know what went on in my sessions, but not so much that I would ever get my client into any sort of trouble. Eventually, I just started to pretend like everything was fine, sacrificing what could have been valuable instruction from my supervisor to ensure my clients had some semblance of real and actual privacy. As a therapist using insurance, I was also required to diagnose my clients from session one. I had 50 minutes, five zero, 50 minutes to meet you, listen to you, and then decide what was wrong with you. What if I was wrong? Did you know that diagnoses can follow you from therapist to therapist? Did you know that your therapist notes can be subpoenaed if you ever stay in trial? Also, just an aside, if you are seeing a therapist that is employed by your school or your workplace, don't. Just do not do that. Don't do it. Thing two. Mastery is a fucking lie. It is such a farce. 
I think the allure of therapy and private practice is the illusion of control, that we have means to change our individual circumstances should we self-assess, plan, and execute accordingly. In this society, that's only really true for people with certain amounts of structural backing. Remember when I said this essay would be a mix of text to draw from personal and experience, or sorry, remember when I said this essay would be a mix of texts uh, to draw from and personal experiences? I'm going to tell you a story. Never, I will never forget my first session. My client, whom I still love and pray for and hope every day is doing well, was crying with me because she was navigating treatment of her child's speech delay. I am trying to keep my own self together because my kitchen exploded and I cannot tell her that. She is living in an old house that has lead in the paint and because of that her children have higher amounts of lead in their system than what is recommended. And I am living in an old house that had so much water damage in the kitchen that the cabinetry fell off of the wall. Picture this. Her, the patient, crying with me because her children have lead poisoning and she feels like a terrible mother when the fault of the situation was poverty and thus the fault of the government. Me, the clinician, holding back tears because she doesn't know how deep my empathy goes. Because I am living in a barely legal apartment trying to afford the ability to work for free in order to get my master's degree because I know that I am still wading through poverty now, but I am on a track of life that will catapult me into the next kind of working class, the licensed professional instead of the quote-unquote unskilled laborer. I will have money to solve my problems and she will continue to call me about the issues of poverty that show up in hers. And I will teach her tools about mind regulation and breathing and journaling. And I will have had the money to actually solve my problems. In every piece of employment I've had, I've experienced this movie moment where the light bulb went off, where I zoom out and watch my life unfold like an audience member in a theater, where I see myself and I say, oh, oh, this is dystopian. I live in a dystopia. This moment here, almost crying with my client, was mine in terms of therapy. This was my this is dystopian moment. I never recovered. My training to give this woman mastery of her life is a farce. My mastery of life was a fucking farce. I'm not saying that your mindset doesn't matter. I'm saying that CBT don't fix lead paint in your house. And DBT don't fix the fact that I can see the outside from my kitchen floor. Do you know what solves the problems of poverty? Money does. Competent and long-lasting poverty eradication efforts. Safe and affordable public housing as a right expanded welfare and Medicaid until we have universal health care coverage, eradication and abolishment of debt slavery, read student loans. After that session, I asked my supervisor if there are any resources I could connect her with. I knew from previous placements that uh, databases exist that are exclusive to licensed clinical social workers. And she said, yeah, we don't we don't really do that. And like, honestly, she was right. Resource connection is truly out of your job scope as a private practice clinician. You would exhaust yourself. You would burn yourself out completely trying to connect each of your clients to possible fixes to their problems because that's the thing about aid. It's not even a guarantee. It is based on deservingness. I would have failed out of school trying to give meaningful, substantive aid to my clients outside of the coping mechanisms and the conflict resolution that I was taught to give them. No, you cannot conflict resolve your way out of poverty, but it was truly all that I could do for them in the moment. That's when the reality of the job fully sank in. We are the administrative police. We document you and we train you in regulating yourself so that you do not do anything rash. 
we are ultimately in service of the state. So here is back to my original thesis. Licensure does more to protect the job security of the clinician. It does more to legitimize them and make them someone that is employable and someone that you're designed to trust. Licensure does more to protect the clinician than it does the health or the privacy of the client. The only thing that protects clients in this industry is praxis, and we know for damn sure that praxis does not come from state administrators, registration, or tests. We know that it don't. We black social workers often say, you gotta answer that test like a white person. We know that there is no praxis coming from those tests. We protect private property, and that private property is you. You, the worker bee, the community member, the tired and frightened child are the property of the oligarchs who we feed with our labor. Nothing has changed. We make sure that you are regulated enough to continue in the game of capitalism instead of encouraging you to aid in the struggles to eradicate it. Contemporary therapy and psychology focuses on being regulated, sustainable coping mechanisms, and staying productive. Why would we not want to take away the problems that has everyone coping in the first place? We, the trained and academy healer, give you the tools to make sure that you can keep working. Private practice lacks the equipment to help the people at the bottom of our socioeconomic hierarchies move the boulders out of their path because we cannot actually do that. If we did, we would work ourselves out of a job. Part four, conclusions. Healing individually is overrated. The way we go about mental health in the United States is still quite carceral. The only real protections that come with seeing a licensed clinician is the idea that you can report them if they do something wrong. So that's the same model of policing, right? It doesn't actually stop harm from happening to you. It makes sure that you can call someone to punish them if that harm happens. And in addition, go see a therapist as the height and depth of what healing looks like to the layperson is ass. It is just entirely inadequate. What's present is that same structure of carcerality. Someone else out of sight, away from me until it can be productive again. Go to therapy already has become a Twitter report for people behaving poorly. We treat therapy like the grown up version of timeout. Under capitalism, the idea of expertise is designed to destabilize community and community knowledge. This is not to say that experts of their craft are bad or not to be trusted or shouldn't exist. I am very pro-expert. It is to say that there is far more than one way to be an expert. There are multiple ways of knowing. The see a therapist cry positions that we are not, cannot, and should not be responsible for each other's well-being. I could not agree less. Most of the wounds that I work on with clients happen in community in family systems, at church, in schoolings, or other governmental bodies. Our individual problems reflect the issues that we have as bodies of people, and knowing this, I am then of the opinion that seeing a therapist and healing individually, while helpful for understanding oneself and learning coping mechanisms that you really do need to survive this world, they only go so far. The true test of healing occurs when you are placed back in settings designed to foster love, connection, intimacy, and long-term affection. Outsourcing your problems cannot be the only way to get better if we are to make a world where we actually can rely on each other. At Alafia Coaching, I am using my academic and my experiential training and seeing black folks in groups or whoever signs up. 
The idea is to equip a community of people with the means to care for each other so that one day they won't need to pay to see me. If you got all the way to the bottom of this essay or all the way through this recording and said, man, I hope and pray this person is still seeing clients so that I may see them, go ahead and click that link. But I just wanted to be honest with you about why I'm making the decisions that I, with my career that I'm making. And thank you for reading. I leave us with some benedictions. One, I hope that we see structures of policing in the truth of just how vast they are. Two, I hope that clear sight leads us away from panic, disillusionment, and despair, and towards the will to make friends that can help us pull the new world in from the floating horizon. Three, I hope you find a village to heal in better than the ones that harmed you. And four, as always, I hope the work of your day passes through your hands with ease. Isma to Gwendolyn.